rely on the fact that, well, I've already introduced myself and I've already said what my job title is, so that will just be taken as, as wrote. I mean, the number of times that I've introduced myself and my credentials, you know, actually building innovations and launching in inventions myself, you know, I've got patent applications pending, you know, all the rest of it, um, and and still having the person on the other side of the table go, oh, okay, so you are, you're like the marketing person for it then? And realizing you have to really, really, really belabor certain points to really penetrate that bias lens. Digital transformation is one of the biggest buzzwords in tech today. Where does it start? Where does it end? And perhaps the biggest of all, how do you deliver an innovation agenda when the corporate antibodies are doing everything in their power to stop you? In this episode of the Women of Steel series right here on the Matt Brown Show, I chat to Lindsay Herbert an inventor and innovation leader at IBM who literally wrote the book called Digital Transformation. And we explore what it really takes to transform a business in today's digitally connected economy. The state of women empowerment and gender inequality in boardrooms in the UK. I was fortunate enough to catch Lindsay right before she flew to Russia to give a keynote on digital transformation and the future of skills development. So without further ado, enter Lindsay Herbert. Hey guys, welcome back to another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. In fact, why do I keep doing that? I keep saying it's the Matt Brown Show when it's actually Woman of Steel. <laughs> I'm like, a, I'm trapped in my own transformation agenda. Hey, Lindsay. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is part four of Woman of Steel, and I'm very privileged and honored to have Lindsay Herbert all the way from the UK joining us today. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Look at that face. <laughs> She's like, what is happening here? I thought this was a podcast. Uh, but Lindsay, on a serious note, though, um, obviously we met at London Tech Week and had a really amazing chat about all things digital transformation. Um, and really, I wanted to get you back onto this particular series because I think as a woman, as an executive, as an inventor, as an author of the book Digital Transformation, I think we didn't really go as deep as I'd like to. So today, we're going to have a go at that. But uh, for our viewers and listeners out there who potentially haven't caught our State of X uh, episode, um, who are you and what are you all about? What do we need to know? What's the headline? Well, so the main headline is uh, the reason why I'm the author of the book, Digital Transformation, is because I spent my career doing innovation, transformation, digital type work for big companies. And uh, the word digital transformation only really became a thing about 10 years ago, maybe a little under 10 years ago, and then started wreaking havoc across people's businesses. Um, it turned into this dangerous buzzword that you would see at the top of a, of a proposal, of a brief, um, to do everything from build a website to launch a mobile app, mm. uh, but no one knew what it meant. And people were making big business decisions off the back of this piece of buzzword garbage, digital transformation. And I knew, though, from experience, how much work actually goes into leading major innovation, especially innovation programs across a big company. And I just set out this mission for myself to validate, firstly, validate my own lessons that I'd learned firsthand, you know, and all the battle scars I'd earned along the way. Uh, but also I wanted an excuse to be able to talk to people all over the world and find out their lessons, hard won lessons from innovation, and be able to distill all of that down into a guide that anyone could follow um, and so really that's, that's what ended up turning into the book um, and is something that I continuously uh, learn and preach and practice and still collect stories from others today because mm. innovation is really the only way we're ever going to be able to adapt to all the changes that are happening in the world around us. So, so that, that's kind of the, the, the big headline for me. Mm. Uh, but then my day job uh, is I'm an inventor for IBM and I'm also innovation leader for UK and Ireland for IBM. Um, and that's just sort of continuing on that digital transformation piece, continuing to practice what I preach. Yeah, well, that's great. And that's actually very refreshing to hear because um, I actually literally just shared our episode out on LinkedIn 
Um, because, you know, digital transformation, what it, you know, where is that? Is it a destination? Is it a journey? Where does it start? Where does it stop? And, you know, I think a lot of companies are talking about this idea of digital transformation. Um, and it's refreshing to actually connect with someone who's doing this on a global stage in the real world. Um, so, but for those of our protagonists out there, when they, you know, what are your words to them as it relates to digital transformation? Is this an actual thing? What is it in your world? What is your perspective on that? Sure. So for me, the definition of digital transformation is just to be more adaptive to change itself. How does a company, how does an individual be adaptive to change itself? And the, where the digital bit comes in is the fact that you can only do this now by leveraging data, technology, and new ways of working that have been brought about by the digital age, right? So it's using those things as tools but to be adaptive to change. And those changes can manifest in any form. It can be changes in customer behavior. It could be tech changes in the technology landscape and the competitive landscape. It could be environmental changes, social, political, you know, whatever kind of change your company is contending with, or even you as a professional, the changes that you're having to face, you know, updating your skill sets, changing your ways of working. It, that's what digital transformation is. It's being adaptive to that change, but it's using data technology and new ways of working in order to do it, mm. you know? And then I tell people now that you've learned the definition, stop saying the words because no one knows what digital transformation means. Everyone has their own definition and it just creates more confusion than creating any kind of benefit or shortcut to a discussion. Some people think digital transformation just means moving to the cloud or use AI, you know, yeah. and, and it just adds confusion, not clarity. <laughs> so what I mean what is what are we actually talking about um when we look at the paradigm of digital transformation I mean what are we actually I know you mentioned the word adapt is that is that all that it's really about is it about adapting to the pace of this exponential kind of world that we're inheriting at the moment is that the story That's really the story that's it and because and you know to say is it just about adapting Yes, but what we're adapting to the complex, the level of complexity and the scale of change is so much bigger than it's ever been before. Mm. Because even just think about it from the perspective of, of a kid, of a young person. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, when I was 12 years old, my world ended at the end of my street. You know, my school was my biggest sense of the world. My parents, my family, my, my friends on my block. A 12-year-old today could have best friends on the other side of the world. They could be working collaboratively on projects with, with other people, with grown-ups, with other organizations. You know, like their, their sense of scale and their ability to reach out and to work with others is exponential compared to what, what you know, older folks like me had when we were young and we were growing up. And so to say to a young person, adapt to change, they understand the, the different levels of change and complexities of change. Unfortunately, when you talk to like a 50 year old in a business and we talk about it being adaptive to change, they're sometimes still thinking of that really small world of their customers, their suppliers and their internal staff. And, and, but really the, the scale of change is so much bigger and more complex now. And if you really learn to adapt to it, you can start coming up with really cool things like new business models. You can change your products and your services. You can find new markets. You can find new ways to be better as a business and achieve your mission statement. But you have to stop thinking so myopically and you have to stop thinking about it in just the, the traditional context you're used to thinking as a business person. Yeah. So, but. Yeah, it is just adapting to change. It's just that that change happens to be horrifically complex and fast paced now. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah, I want to pick up on that thing about the old days. You know, it's just like if you wanted to meet with your friend, it'd be like, okay, Mark, uh, I'm going to meet you at the playground at exactly three o'clock. And then that was it. Like you didn't have any recourse. Like if he wasn't there at like around about three, you were done. <laughs> yeah. Like, or, or if you were like half an hour late to something, people would think that something terrible had happened. You know, they'd be <laughs> expecting you to race up, you know, all like wet and bleeding and cut like, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me on my way over here. Now people are half an hour late to everything. It's just a matter of course, because all they need to do is send a text message and go, oh, I'm running late. Don't. Yeah, and, exactly. and nobody cares about anyone being late anymore either, because mm -hmm. the second you know you're going to be waiting around for 30 minutes, what do you do? You take your phone out. 
So our concept of time and connection is totally skewed compared to, yeah, what, what we're meant to be perceiving and feeling on a normal human level. Mm. I think that's the other thing that people need to really come to grips with is that we're not really, as humans, we've not evolved to communicate like this. We're not evolved to have social circles and, and, and to have relationships form in these ways. And so it can actually feel very isolating, can feel very lonely. It can feel very scary. And that scale of, of change can, can become quite overwhelming. But the way to cope with it is to lean back on what we're used to as a human species, which is making sure that we're forming those connections and leveraging the relationships that we do have, you know, being a tribe, but being a tribe on a much bigger scale and finding the right way of doing that and using technology in order to facilitate that. That's the way to survive. You know, that's the way to get over the the panic that can sometimes set in of this changing, scary world. Yeah, it's interesting because um, how do you survive the future? I mean, you know, if you think about it, it was pretty easy to predict the future. You know what I mean? In the sense that, you know, my my world today is going to be the same world that it is tomorrow. It's like that It'll there will be TV tomorrow, TV and radio, you know, talking about the proliferation of media. And then suddenly there's social media and email and WhatsApp and WeChat and, you know, and every, and there's just so many different ways to communicate. And so suddenly it becomes a little bit unpredictable rather than predictable. And it, I suppose it's this exponential growth surprise factor that we kind of don't really, or well, I suppose our minds aren't really prepared to, to kind of deal with, I guess. So and, like, and we're what, absolutely, the kind of change that's going to come in the next five years will be shocking to us from today's standards. And if you think about someone who was alive, you know, someone who, who died 10 years ago, if you were to be able to show them now the sort of world that we live in, you know, there would, they would already be shocked at what's possible. You go back 50 years and you rewind it 10 years, you know, from the 1950s. So you say to someone from the 1940s, look at life in the 50s. That's not going to be a shock to them. The difference between, you know, and it's, it's summarized under the law of accelerating returns, but the difference in change now and the speed at which we're, we're actually having breakthrough building upon breakthrough means that our world will be unrecognizable in five years time. But we've just sort of gotten used to that pace of change, which is a scary thing in itself. Mm. What would you say are I mean, what does that, what does the world actually look like? I mean, I mean, obviously you're kind of uniquely positioned to comment on trends that you see both from the West and from the East and obviously from Europe where you're based. Um, I mean, what, I mean, how significantly or should I say unrecognizable really is the world going to look like in five years? I mean, what are some of the things we should be looking out for? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Well, I think that the big revolution is going to come in the form of artificial intelligence and how it will be able to leverage big data. But I honestly, I mean, I would never be so bold as to think that I know how it's going to be used or in what ways it's going to manifest. I think anyone who's saying that absolutely for sure in five years time, the following technologies will be mature and in full scale use um, is... I, they're just trying to sell books probably yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the, the reality is, I mean, we couldn't have predicted where we are right now, five years ago. And a lot of that's because it's not one stream of technology that's leading to a breakthrough. It's mm-hmm. people leveraging other 
breakthroughs in other areas and applying them in new scenarios. That's what's resulting in the world that we currently live in and the problems that come with it. You know, we've got artificial intelligence that's operating in every area of life. We don't often know about it, but it's in the background making decisions. Um, and there is inherent bias built into a lot of that artificial intelligence. Sometimes it takes a very long time for people to realize how much bias has been built into it. And so, um, you know, I heard a really good example recently, actually, of um, uh, looking at approvals for loans, you know, from a, from a financial organization. Um, and the idea that women were getting penalized for loan applications when they would have a, a gap in their employment history, you know, in their earnings, because the AI that was making those decisions hadn't factored in maternity leave. So they were looking at it as just a black and white, is this person continuously employed, yes or no? You know, how much money are they making every month? And not factoring in one of the most biologically obvious reasons why a woman would have a particular gap versus a man in the population. So being able to adjust for those sorts of oversights, um, that's going to lead to better, stronger AI, better, stronger decision-making businesses that can be built upon that. Um, but it relies on someone spotting it. And to say in five years time, those sorts of problems will all be solved. I don't, I don't think they're going to be. Um, new problems will also crop up that we also aren't being able to predict right now. Um, but what we do know in five years time is that ev every single piece of technology and all the different applications are just going to increase. Um, it's up to all of us to get more involved to better understand that technology, um, to not just leave it up to the computer scientists uh, in order to ensure that when it does get to five years time from now, the technologies that we have are serving everyone, all of humanity, not just a subset or you know, not blindly following a, a, a narrow set of directives that um, don't really have everyone's best interest at heart. Yeah. One of the interesting th observations from um, doing or shooting State of X at London Tech Week was how prevalent AI actually is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not a case of, hey, Lindsay, um, are you guys working with AI? It's like, uh uh. It's like, so tell me about your AI and how does it work? You know what I mean? It's, it's very much a, we already do this thing. Uh, it's not something that we're thinking about doing. You know, should we no, adopt exactly. the blockchain? Yes or no? Well, yeah, exactly. You know, AI is like you do this now. <laughs> one, one of my favorite quotes, and I'm trying to remember who said it, uh, is as soon as something starts working, we stop calling it AI. And I think that's very true. That because AI also has is also very shrouded in mystery, and some people have a very overblown expectation of what it can do currently. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, you're thinking Terminator, you know, like that level of AI or fully sentient humanoid robot that can um, pass as a human and, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, so some people have really overblown expectations of what AI is and can do today. When in reality, there are some really clever things that are possible with AI today, but <laughs> once they work and once they've been proven out, people tend to stop calling them AI, mm -hmm. which I think is quite funny, but it's because we normalize it and it just becomes part of business as usual yeah. and people just rely on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a, it's no longer a buzzword for something cool. It's just part and parcel of what. Like, oh, is. that's just how we determine our flight prices and do seat allocations for airlines. Yeah, that's that's not AI though. Well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, uh, your book, Digital Transformation. Um, why did you decide to write that? I mean, you're an inventor, uh, obviously you're in a pretty unique position at um, IBM and so forth, but. Why did you decide to write that specific book? Why not? Yeah, so so it started well before IBM, actually. I was working for a digital agency, and uh, I'd been leading major digital transformation-type programs of work um, where we would be building building some core piece of technology for an organization, but also making decisions around business strategy, you know, working with them to make decisions around business strategy and business models and how this, the application of the new piece of technology was going to transform the way that they deliver their products and services, you know, so, you know, and under that umbrella of digital transformation. So I was leading those sorts of big programs of work 
And I was noticing a pattern recurring of projects that would have problems and would end up costing more money than people thought, taking longer than people thought, causing more heartache and pain than people thought. They had commonalities that transcended what sector they were from, transcended what size of budget or scale of organization, even the geography of the organization. The problems were universal. Same thing with the projects that went really well. Those ones had commonalities that you couldn't ignore, that didn't come from the fact that they were had anything else in common other than the fact that their digital transformation projects were successful. And it actually all came to a head uh, when I was on a train journey. I was traveling to from London to Oxford, and I was really upset because a project I was leading was just not going well. It Every possible thing you can imagine on a technology project and a major change management project, everything that could have been going wrong was going wrong and things were taking too long and we'd missed a critical launch date. And, you know, I just felt awful about myself because I'm the person leading everything. I've been making, calling all the shots and getting everyone to work together since day one. So, you know, there must've been something I could have spotted at some stage to have put this on a better track. Right. So I'm basically beating myself up on this train journey and I decided to, to look at it practically. So I took out a notepad and I'm listing out all of the things that have been going wrong and where I think the root causes of some of those problems occurred. And that's when I noticed that it almost looked exactly like the timeline of another project that I'd led years prior for a different sector, different geography. And I realized, hang on, wait a minute. I started to group, you know, come up with groupings and, and I thought, okay, if, if, if that is giving me flashbacks of this other project that was troubled, what if I focus on a project I'd led that was, that had just gone brilliantly and actually had over-delivered in terms of innovation and, and, and change for that organization? And that's when I noticed I was starting to get flashbacks of other successful projects as I listed out all those traits. So by the time I got off this train in Oxford, I was, I was on my way to a conference. By the time I got off this train, I thought, okay, I've got something here. I've got the beginnings of something like a framework, something that might be repurposable for other people leading transformation in their organizations. But I know it's only been informed by my own experiences. It's completely biased from my lens. I need to find an excuse to go and check this with other people, validate it. And I thought the best way of doing that would be to, I thought, if I try to do it from the perspective of someone working for a digital agency, it'll look like a sales attempt, like I'm trying to win work with those organizations. So that I need to approach it as an independent, and I want it to be in a format that's shareable once it's done. So I thought, oh, a book. I'll write it as a book. This could be an interesting book topic. Now, I have no experience, <laughs> no experience in publishing. I'd never written a book before, um, but... I was so emboldened by this idea that after getting off this train and walking into the conference, I started introducing myself as, hi, I'm Lindsay. I'm writing a book about digital transformation. And the reason was I wanted to start networking straight away to find people who would be willing to, to, to do interviews for the book. And actually my first interview that I did and, you know, long story of getting a publishing contract and all the rest of it with Bloomsbury. Um, but the first interview that made it into the book was one of the keynote speakers at that conference in Oxford that day. No so, and it ended up being three years of research and writing and interviewing people. Um, but that's what triggered it. And, and I'm very proud to say that I still, you know, I published the book over, a little over a year ago. I'm still getting constant messages, mostly through LinkedIn, of people saying, I've just read your book. And you know what, here's how it applies to what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and I also want to share my story with you. So I'm just collecting even more stories now. And it's, it's amazing. It's exactly why I set out to write it in the first place. Well, that's the best feedback you can get, right? Oh, it's amazing. And especially like the difference in stories I'm getting, but they all follow the same. It's again, people... At, you know, at our core, we're all part of the same human species, and we've all evolved to fear change. Uh, we've all we've all evolved to try to pattern and and set things into patterns as quickly as possible because patterns are easier for us to to follow. And you know, all of these habits that we all have as a, as a species 
lead to massive problems in business when we're trying to contend with change that's happening externally. And we all make the same mistakes. <laughs> we all benefit from the same good lessons because the good lessons, the ones that produce good results, again, we have the things in common as people of we, when we are encouraged to work and collaborate with people who don't share the same skill set as us towards a common goal, you know, like a lot of agile projects and design thinking methodology advocates, when we do that, that's, that taps into a very primitive part of us that actually does want to solve problems together as a tribe. And so there are, it, it is just really incredible to, to see just how universal it is. What I wrote about um, and interviewing everyone that I did for the book, it, they're universal lessons. They're not to do with a particular type of technology or a particular decade that we happen to be living in right now. And that was also really fascinating to see and then to validate as yeah. well. See, that's really in- that's really interesting for me because I was I was actually before you dived into that whole last um, that whole last tirade, tirade if that was what you want to call that. But um, but basically, you know, it, it, I was going to ask you: Is digital transformation, or how much have you were to allocate in a pie graph? internal versus external how much of digital transformation is actually about you and versus what you need to do in the business uh, well so, i mean that's a that's a tricky one because the first in my book i talk about five stages that you have to go through to be successful at adapting to change you know or being adaptive to change and it's an ongoing process you're always going through these five stages over and over again in a cycle and the first one the most important stage is I, I call it bridge because my five stages spell the uh, acronym build. Okay. So the first stage is, is bridge and it's about being forming bridges, forming permanent connections outside your company that keep you informed internally. Mm-hmm. So yes, the problem is within the company, but the problem is rooted in the fact with the, the, that they've lost those connections externally. Now, and what I talk about in the book is, forming, you know, getting back into a founder's mindset. And the reason I say that is because no business survives its first year if it's not really well connected with its customers, with the competitive landscape, and with all the other potential factors in the external world that could help it succeed as a business, right? A business, you know, someone founding a company today, like a startup, they're out there, they are connecting with customers, they're keeping an eye on the competition, they're trying out different technologies to see which one's going to work best for them. And that's how they get to shift from being a startup to a scale-up. A business that's successfully scaled and is established uh, tends to do so by standardizing things, by finding efficiencies by scaling and then standardizing to, to reduce the cost, but to keep the ability to deliver externally high. That results in it becoming closed off. Silos start to form. It stops paying attention to the customers. It stops paying attention to the competitive landscape. It starts carefully tracking its own efficiencies and it tracks the things that it thinks matters, you know, its sales and its performance and stock price and that sort of thing. But it stops being closely connected with all the variables in the external world that are affecting its ability to deliver on its mission. So which which part is the most important? Is it fixing internal problems or is it looking at what's happening externally? You could say that it's the internal side, but it's entirely about reconnecting with that outside world building those permanent bridges you know feedback loops the uh, getting those insights from the marketplace having connections with the tech world as well so that when a new piece of technology suddenly becomes available for you to start leveraging as a business Mm. that you know about it and you know how to start using it you know all of those things that is what spells success in today's business world and it doesn't matter if you're a nonprofit if you're a government if you're a university or if you're a, a, a private company selling commercially mm-hmm. it's exactly the same for everyone for sure yeah that's such a great point funnily enough we we've actually just gone and done the whole you know uh, documenting our processes and you know doing the things and like looking at new systems and basically exactly what you've described we've done the we've delivered projects that will enable us to deliver more at the same sort of margin and profits and impact that we that we have done historically 
Um, and it's very interesting because I've never thought about the fact that as a result of that and as a byproduct of that, you actually start to close off because you're actually just now a business that's at scale or scaling up, right? So you don't feel like there's a there's an emphasis required in order to in, ensure that you remain connected to your to your markets and not necessarily your customers, but like outside of your business, right? So looking Absolutely. at innovations and different other things and so on and so forth. And by the way, that was one of the biggest things that, that struck me, you know, as an African tech entrepreneur. And even as, you know, we won Africa's best tech startup and, you know, having done all of, achieved really cool things this year, going over to, to London, I was just totally struck by how, open everything is it's like everyone's sh- have a look at my stuff you know look at this look at this and, and it doesn't matter whether you're ibm oracle or microsoft's like this is what this is what we do <laughs> you know and there and everyone's communicating with each other constantly and i think locally in africa we we don't have that kind of ecosystem draw card um so mm. i was going to ask you at, a, at an ecosystem level looking now at africa specifically or emerging markets where potentially we don't have you know developed markets we don't we have a very different kind of customer um uh, what is what are your what's your perspective on digital transformation in emerging markets what's uh, some breadcrumbs that you want to share with us at the moment well so i mean from what i've seen personally um there can be some of the best catalysts for innovation in emerging markets because they have real problems to solve and real urgency to solve them and one of the things that i say actually and it's in a talk that i i give um and it's the ingredients to innovation, you know, so what's the formula for, for innovation? And I say, you have to start with a worthy problem and the worthy problem doesn't have to mean feeding the hungry. And, you know, it doesn't have to be worthy in an altruistic sense, but it needs to be worthy in a sense that it matters to everyone across the company, regardless of uh, what, what department they work in and what job function they perform. And it should also matter to more than the company itself as well. There should be others who would care about solving that worthy problem because in a place like an emerging market, uh, you can then take the fact that you're trying to tackle the problem and use that as your point to build an ecosystem around. You know, sometimes the problem I find, you know, and I, I grew up um, and spent the first part of my career uh, in northern Canada, which is not a tech hub. <laughs> It is not a place where you go to mix and mingle and go to AI summits. Are you sure? And you know, because I so, went out there, it was just rammed with AI arts in the uh, in Alaska. You know, it was great. <laughs> nice. Well, there you go. Well, when I was growing up, not so much. And uh, so the so for, you know, but for me, it was easy to find people to solve problems if I can identify a common problem that people cared about. One of my first big projects in the digital transformation space was actually in Alberta in the Canadian Badlands region, which is the whole southern half of a province. Like Landmass-wise, it's, it's bigger than the United Kingdom. Um, and it's a tourism destination region. And at that time, Expedia and Travelocity had sort of made a splash. And people were starting to book travel with these companies called Travelocity. And what that meant were that the hotel chains and the uh, the local attractions in a place like the Canadian Badlands were kind of being held to ransom because Travelocity could say to a hotel chain, you have to allocate X number of rooms to our inventory system, which you can't see, can't access, can't take the rooms back once you've allocated them. And if they get sold, we'll keep all the customer's data and... Um, We'll give you the money for the room, but you have no relationship with that customer. You don't even get to see who they are. You can't email them. You can't contact them. And what was happening was that rooms were going empty, right? You'd have you'd, you'd put a bunch of stock onto Travelocity or Expedia, and they wouldn't get sold. But because the hotelier had no way of taking those rooms back or even checking to see if they were getting sold, then they were just going empty. So they were. It was costing them money. It was costing them customer relationships because if any problems occurred with the room, you know, they couldn't make it right directly with the customer. Everything was having to be brokered back and forth. And they were also getting gouged on pricing because um, they needed to stay competitive with the rates that they were posting. Travelocity, Expedia, those guys are taking a cut as on top of the room rate. Um, and so it was a really bad situation. So, so when I got 
um, when I had an opportunity, actually, it was to work for the federal government of Canada uh, to put together a grant to build a new destination, you know, online platform for the Canadian Badlands region. Um, the easiest way to have meetings with all those hotel chains, with all those attractions, was to basically talk about the Travelocity problem, the Expedia problem, the fact that everyone wanted a better way to be able to serve the customers who were coming to that region. And so, great, let's all work together and leverage. And, and it meant that when I finally launched the, the new online reservation platform for the Canadian Badlands that um, had transparency, that hotel chains could could see their rooms, allocate rooms, take them off, do whatever they want. And because it was a, a government project, they weren't being charged for it either. Um, it meant that I had so much more room to do experimentation and innovation. And all of these different partners, these different businesses were loaning all kinds of resource and time and expertise and, you know, all the collaboration that was needed. Um, and then once it was up and running, we're actually willing to contribute to its ongoing upkeep and, and maintenance. And I'm very proud to say that even though I launched that, oh God, that was so long ago, it ended up being live for, I think about seven, seven or eight years um, before it ended up having to, you know, undergoing a, a big revamp. And so eight years online, that's a very long time for something to be live and running for, but it was just a testament to the fact that Actually, it was informed by all of the people who were going to be using it and benefiting it from it. Mm. Um, but that's how I got everyone to the table, you know, mm. that, and especially back in those days when no one in those parts of the world, especially even really believed in the value of a website. Yeah. It was really just the Travelocity and Expedia threats that were that were making them even think that it was worth having a website for their business. So. Mm. It just it just goes to show you that when you talk about emerging markets, you talk about people who are struggling to make those connections, you find the right problem. Suddenly, you find yourself with people knocking on your door instead of the other way around. Amazing, <laughs> Lizzie. Let's let's uh, sort of um, triage over to the women empowerment discussion. Um, so you know, I suppose the, I think the first point I want to make uh, or want to put to you is that innovation is very hard. I think uh, human beings like to talk about change, and but actually they're, they're quite resistant to it. Um, you've got corporate antibodies, you've got shareholders, you've got um, you know things like the Skunk Works, and and so many different kind of uh, and also startups, you know, in, engaging with corporates. And we spoke about that on on State of X in our previous chats, you know. But innovation in general is pretty hard, right? And as a business leader, when you're sitting at at a table of C-suites and you're going, okay, legacy board uh, members, <laughs> you know, and they're all male, uh, and you're stand and you're sitting there at the table as Lindsay Herbert, um, are you taken seriously? And I mean this with the greatest respect. I respect you massively. Obviously, obviously, I take you seriously. But as a woman looking at the woman empowerment agenda and these kind of gender norm things. When you're trying to push an innovation agenda to a boardroom that's, you know, I would say on average, mainly filled with men, how do you get that innovation agenda across? Mm, well, I mean, that's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So I think the first thing that anyone needs to recognize is how all of us live our lives through a very biased lens. And we have lots of unconscious biases that we all hold that affect our behavior, that affect our decisions. And um, it used to be thought that just by understanding the bias that we would be able to stop behaving according to it. And But there is now evidence to suggest that that is not true, uh, that we have to put a lot more work into overcoming the bias that we the you know, the different biases that, that we hold. Um, so, so that's part of it. Um, and, you know, and it's not just about bias uh, against women. It can also be age related, you know, it could be, um, whether or not you come from the right background, whether you have the right education, do you have the right accent when you speak? You know, there, there are so many different things that can affect the perception of you when you walk into a boardroom. Um, I think one of the really critical things um, that everyone would benefit a huge amount from is, is actually to take a huge chunk of time before going into a meeting like that and to think about it from the try to think about it from the perspective of the people on the other side of the table 
What are they, what are their fears? What are their aspirations? Why is it that they're on the board of that company? What do they hope to get out of that meeting? Um, and to as much as possible to frame things from that perspective. And one of the things that I do all the time is I make sure to spend a huge amount connecting with people who, uh, who are more of that demographic than, than mine so that I'm not making assumptions um, so that I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually cognizant of the pressures that they're under. Cause sometimes it's not just a case of I'm walking in as a woman. Sometimes it's a case of I'm walking in as a, an inventor and an innovator and I'm saying words like digital transformation and they're thinking, I don't know if I can make payroll at the end of this quarter. Mm. So if I am not aware of the business pressure that they're under and I'm not framing it from the perspective of addressing those pressures, then I might as well be going in and suggesting that we just host a big party, you know, like it's going to, it's going to sound completely inappropriate from the perspective, you know? So <laughs> I think that, um, I think that's the first thing, but I think there are certain things that women in particular need to be aware of. Um, we are always, um, both men and women will perceive a woman more favorably if she is speaking from the perspective of communal good. And that's just an unfortunate gender stereotype that lives in, in our society. So if I want to advocate for something, I'll be more successful if I am perceived as advocating for everyone's benefit rather than my own benefit. Um, whereas a man can advocate for his own benefit and not be judged harshly for that. Um, I think there are other things as well that, you know, people, uh, a lot of people still believe that there are biological brain differences between men and women that mean that women aren't as good at math or, or science or that, uh, you know, gender can, you know, gender behavior can be detected as babies because of these brain differences. A lot of people really fully believe that garbage. <laughs> and so being aware of that and knowing that as a woman, then you have to work a little bit harder to prove your, your skills, your credentials, your knowledge, and not just being able to, um, uh, to rely on the fact that, well, I've already introduced myself and I've already said what my job title is. So that will just be taken as, as wrote. I mean, the number of times that I've introduced myself and my credentials, you know, actually building innovations and launching in inventions myself, you know, I've got patent applications pending, you know, all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and, and still having the person on the other side of the table go, Oh, okay. So you were, you're like the marketing person for it then. And it's realizing ridiculous. you have to, really, really, really belabor certain points to really penetrate that bias lens. Because otherwise, um, yeah, I, I, well, I think the main thing is people spend most of the time when you're talking, they're thinking of what they're going to say next. They're not really listening to you. So being aware of that and knowing that you have to have those key messages and you just have to keep hammering hard on them. Um, and hopefully through behavior and through performance and experience, then, you know, you'll, you'll be able to to help them overcome their own bias of, mm. of what you are and what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one. I mean, just to your points, I think most people are, are listening to respond. They're not listening to understand. And, and that's Absolutely. a really big deal. You know, if you're, if, if, you know, if I, I mean, to be fair though, I mean, if I was sitting across from you at, in, at a boardroom, <laughs> I'd be quite intimidated to be fair. You know what I mean? You're an author, you're an inventor, you're like all these things. And, you know, and I've been having this conversation and I'm doing this Women of Steel series to, to kind of bring these, these ideas out into the public domain and, and really trying to flesh them out with people who have been there and bring fresh perspectives to the table. I mean, what advice do you have to a woman executive that's potentially feeling maybe undermined or not taken seriously or maybe even being bullied? What are your kind of words of advice to her right now? I would say that she needs to reach out and she needs to find other women who are, uh, who have achieved success in the thing that she wants to achieve success in reach out to them and say, I'd really like your advice. I'm having this problem. I'm, I'm having this experience. And um, when, you know, when I get those types of messages on LinkedIn, if I get a message from someone in my network or via someone from my network saying, I really admire what, what it is you do, 
I, I'd love your advice. I'm at a pivotal point in my career. Can we, you know, can I schedule a, a short phone call with you? I am, I, I love having those conversations because um, I have learned a lot of things the hard way. And I would love to share my knowledge with someone who's struggling in a situation that they might be facing, but I'm also going to learn things from, from her as well, mm. you know? And, and so building on the success of, of others, um, I would make sure though, that if you are going to do that LinkedIn approach, that you make it clear that you're, what you're asking advice around and, and, you know, make it, uh, a very easy to, um, very easy to accept invitation, something like a short phone call, as opposed to let's meet up for coffee for an hour, or can I take you to lunch? You know, that that's a bit too much, especially with how busy everyone is nowadays. Um, but I think that's the first thing. And the other thing too is, is reach out to, um, you know, you can call them male allies, but it, if there are people in your organization um, who are in senior roles, who are men um, who you have, have demonstrated faith in your abilities in the past, reach out to them and explain the situation that you're facing, the experience that you're having and get their perspective on it. Because um, it can be that they can either help with their influence. It can be that they give advice or it could be that they actually can help um, to address the root cause. Because if it really is a problem of sexism, or if it really is a, a problem relating to the culture of the organization, you're you're absolutely going to need as many allies as you can get to address it. Mm. Um, but then the last piece of advice I would say is is if you're in an environment that's properly toxic, just get the hell out. There's so many better jobs out there. <laughs> and lend your talents and skills to an organization that will appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, totally. And can you give us a, a kind of an objective viewpoint on the gender inequality or the status of gender inequality in the UK specifically and in that work environment? I mean, we obviously are quite, you know, we have our own view here because obviously we're based here. Uh, but it'll be really interesting to get your views. I mean, how, how you know, acute is gender inequality in boardrooms at C-suite level across the UK? Mm, um, well, it's not my specialist field. Sure. Uh, so I, you know, I won't, I, I can't speak to anything in detail, but uh, from my own personal perspective and, and what I've witnessed, it doesn't take uh, a, an expert to know that there is massive inequality. You just have to look at the list of board members um, for the major companies. Um, the, uh, it's something that a lot of companies are putting a huge amount of work into addressing. I think some things that are being done aren't necessarily as effective as others. Mm. Uh, for example, I know that, um, uh, you know, from my own network, I know that a lot more people are getting interviewed for senior level, board level type positions. A lot more women are being granted interviews, uh, but they're not necessarily being appointed more. So that, that sometimes, um, uh, fits into the category of, uh, of, of superficial efforts to address the inequality so that the organization can say, oh, well, we've, we've increased the number of interviews, uh, we've increased the number of meetings held, you know, blah, 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 with people who are women, people from ethnic minority groups. Uh, you know, so we had this many more people in through the door that were considered than have ever been considered before. But the problem is if they're not actually being given a seat, then it mm. sort of doesn't matter. Um, yeah. The exact same problem exists for investors, for women who are applying for uh, seed capital, for startup businesses. A lot more will get meetings, uh, but are they actually getting given the money at the end of those meetings? Mm. Um, so that's that's still a major problem. Um, and I think that one of the critical things for, for addressing inequality, especially at C-suite level, is looking at what are the criteria that you're hiring against? Mm. And is that criteria actually still valid in the modern context of your business? You know, and it's, it's interesting how um, when you really unpick why certain minimum criteria has been set for a job posting, so much of it goes back to some weird historical cultural thing about the business. Because um, at one point, it was really important to have an MBA for this role, or at one point it was really important for someone to have come from a financial background, a FTSE 500 company, et cetera, et cetera. 
but if those are your minimum criteria for awarding the position and you know for a fact that that women are underrepresented in all of those backgrounds that I just stated, then you're never going to be improving your pipeline. Um, but why do you think you need someone from those backgrounds? And where is your business and your sector actually heading? Um, and are you really looking at the full breadth of skill sets and backgrounds that are going to help you navigate those uncharted waters? Or do you just want more of the same? So really going back to the root of why are we hiring the people we hire and actually should we be broadening out our requirements, um, I think is, is, a, is one of the first meaningful steps an organization can take to addressing that inequality. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, one of the, the great um, kind of ideas around, um, just going back to our original starting point of this whole interview, was around how do you survive the future? And it's about really, at least in my view, it's about asking better questions. And I think you've definitely tabled some tough questions, both at a digital transformation, innovation, and gender equality level. But I have one more question for you, Lindsay, and then we'll wrap up, right? Um, why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? My raison d'etre is always that there is a better way of doing everything. We just haven't found it yet. And I really love this idea of never settling for the status quo. How many massive problems is the world facing right now? How many problems am I facing just in my daily life? Inconveniences, time delays, you know, things that cost more than they should. I love the idea of looking at the status quo and going, you know what, let's work together to do better. And that's what gets me up out of bed. And then the fact that technology is so amazing, but it needs people to use it, to apply it, to make it amazing. It's just a tool set otherwise. So the fact that we've got these tools just sitting there, we've got all these problems that need solving. How can you not want to pick up one of those tools and get to work? Absolutely. Lindsay, you've been an absolute gem. Great to speak to you again. <laughs> and thank you so much for being on this edition of Women of Steel. Lindsay Herbert, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> this edition of the map round show is brought to you by networkspace.co.za in fact our studios are here in building number four at network space up in johannesburg these guys have made us a huge deal have really bent over backwards to give us the kind of service that most exciting businesses deserve if you want more information about network space you can actually come and check out our studio we are always open to meet new entrepreneurs and business owners from around the country and you can do that right here at networkspace.coza Thanks for checking out the Map Round Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.